When we left off, it was February 1st, 1959, and our nine young hikers were camping on the treeless, frozen face of Kolatsiakal Mountain. They had set up camp for the night after a difficult day of poor weather and slow progress, and were in the process of making their dinner. They would never be seen alive again. I'm your guest host, Kate. With me, I have my law school bestie, Marina, and this is a Baby Break episode of Grimm. For part duh. Well, Here I am. Welcome back. Also, I almost burst out laughing when you said Klaxosol Mountain. Whatever. <laughs> gotta gotta honor that Russian pronunciation. I bet you that it's spot on. I hope so. But I yeah, I almost laughed. But I'm also sorry. don't at me if it's not. Okay. No. We'll just yeah. <laughs> we'll do better. Let us know that we pronounced it wrong and we're not gonna change it because that'd be really hard. That's but, right. That's you know, right. we like to know better and then we can do better. That's right. I'm out here trying my best. Yeah. So uh first we're gonna do some Patreon shout outs. We have a new group and we love you so much, so thank you. First up, we have Anna R. Yeah, yeah. Anna. Thank you, Woo-hoo. Anna. We love you. Next, Woo-hoo. we have Eden B. Yeah, Eden. Eden, Woo-hoo. thank you. Chloe H. Okay, Chloe. Chloe, we love you. Thank you, MC. M- Go MC. <laughs> I heard it as I said, as I said it. Um, M is actually my massage therapist's daughter. They have been gremlins from day one. Uh, I think she was somebody that I made a t-shirt for like first. I love that. And she's been rocking that shirt since. So MC sounds funny when I say it. All, but I MC, you were just I love you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and last up, we have Flame Sparrow. Okay, Flame Sparrow. Flame Sparrow, we love you. That's Thank you. That's a great you. name, too. Yeah, yeah, I jumped right on the Discord, too. Amazing. We, guys, we love you so much. Thank you so much for supporting us. And I'm happy to say that, um, you know, our numbers have not gone down with um, Kate in our little baby break episode, our little scientific experiment that we're doing here. So, you know, I'm just going to keep keep chugging along while uh, Laura's at home with uh, baby Grimm and um, we'll just we'll just do the damn thing. So Kate's here with part two and it's going to be amazing. And um, over to you, Kate. All right. Great. So I'm happy to be back. Uh, before we dive into it, I'll just rename my sources, which were several, you know, Google sort of search items, but mainly the book Dead Mountain by Donnie Icar and the documentary An Unknown Compelling Force by Liam Veggio. I think he really missed it by not calling it Kleokal Mountain, <laughs> <laughs> the book. I'm sorry, it's Kolatsiakal. Okay. <laughs> I was missing a syllable. <laughs> Get it right or pay the price. <laughs> okay. So let's go back in time to February 2nd, 1959. That's when Yuri Yudin, a.k.a. Yuri Number 3, who had turned back from the expedition due to his chronic pain, arrived at his parents' house where mm. he would remain for the rest of winter break. Right. Though Igor had asked Yuri to send a telegram to the college to let them know that the group was expecting to return three days late, Yuri had forgotten to do so, so none of the hikers' families knew to expect any sort of delay. Which we... I can't remember if we talked about it in part one or if you and I just talked about it separately, but if you are doing like an overnight trip and then you're not there for like three more days, people would be like, where the hell are they? 
But this was what, like a 16-day expedition? Exactly. And I think also it's hard for us to remember a time when communication was not oh, so know, prolific. Like instant, right. And so I do think you see it a lot in the older cases where people are just like, yeah, we hadn't heard from her for a few months, but we just thought, you know, maybe she's out finding herself or right. whatever. Yeah, that's so, it's hard to even imagine living in a time like that. Exactly. But here yeah. we are. If I text you at 11 and I haven't heard back by 11.05, I'm like, I'm sending the police. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, when the group had not made it back to Sverdlovsk, mm-hmm by their original planned return date, which was February 13th, 1959, their families began to worry. And Igor's sister contacted the administrators at the college to report their concerns on February 16th. So they did give it a few days, but not too many. They just had that gut feeling, I think. Right. Which is a bad way to feel. Yeah. The officials downplayed their concerns. They declined the family's request to send out a search plane. They did do the bare minimum, and on February 17th, they sent a telegram to Vijay, which is one of the first, like, sort of civilized stops on the hiker's route back to Sverdlovsk, and the telegram inquired about the status of the expedition. On February 19th, they did receive a reply stating that none of the hikers had been seen in Vijay since their departure, which was not good news. I think the hope was that maybe they'd just gotten tied up or right. delayed, but they, they, had, they were on their way back to safety. So it sounds like the school was doing what police do in a lot of missing persons cases, and they're just waiting as long as possible so that either um, they lose critical pieces of evidence or um, the hikers can no longer be recovered. Bold of you to assume that they cared about gathering evidence at all, as we will see. (laughs) But yeah, pretty much. There was my first mistake. Yeah, yeah. Some things never change. So on February 20th, a full week after the hikers were expected to arrive back in Sverdlovsk, a formal search finally got underway. That same day, Yuri Yudin finally returned to town for school, and he learned for the first time that his friends had still not returned. Many members of the school community, including fellow students, traveled to the Ural Mountains where they volunteered to join the search. Spy planes and helicopters were flown along the planned route, which the hikers had shared with the school ahead of time, for the next several days to scan the ridge. And remember, they were doing this hike as part of trying to get a level three certification or grade three, I'm sorry. And so they had shared their hiking route plan. They'd gotten it approved. It's very Soviet that they had to get pre-approval for a hiking plan. But this is the way it was. Also very Soviet for spy planes to be helping search for the missing hikers. Right. Just have a couple of those laying around. Just saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah. (laughs) So on February 25th, a search helicopter did spot ski tracks along the Ospia River. And again, since this was before the days of cell phones or airline Wi-Fi or anything like that. I thought this was kind of interesting. The search teams on the ground were actually informed by a leaflet drop. So the helicopter flew overhead and they just dropped pamphlets being like, you got to go a different way. Oh (laughs) my gosh. Fascinating. I... I'm picturing them up there with crayons, like writing out these leaflets. Cause I, cause like how did they have them? They didn't have radios, right? Yet... Radios existed, and actually, um, Igor, that was one of his big hobbies, but they were so unwieldy. Picture... It was like the size of like a dining hutch, right? Picture the first computers and how they took up like an entire kitchen, (laughs) right? That's kind of what we're talking about with the radio. So they had them, but they weren't necessarily dragging them up into a helicopter, so... So leaflets. I mean, that's actually... It's kind of smart. It is, right? Yeah. I'm just picturing how did they make them? How did they make them? And did they not get snowed on? Didn't it snow all the time? Well, I think what happened, what I'm picturing is that the helicopter was sort of flying in the air, tracking the searchers on the ground. And so when papers oh, so started they're... fluttering down oh from the God. sky, I think they didn't think it was a coincidence. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. I was th- yeah, I was thinking there was a disconnect between that. 
hikers. Between the hikers and the helicopters. They just threw them out a day ahead. Oh my god, it works out. (laughs) Well, that's what I was thinking. Oh my god. Also, I'm so sorry. I'm like recovering from a cold, and the harder I'm laughing, I'm getting like. I'm getting like weasels and it's just going to be intense. So Sounds I'm, beautiful. I apologize in advance. Never change. Uh, so the leaflet drop was effective. And uh, this uh, the change in direction eventually led uh, searchers to find the hiker's tent. And that happened on February 26th. At first, the searchers were encouraged by the sight of the tent. There is a large rip or cut in the side, and there's some snow on top, but that's to be expected because it had snowed quite a bit because it's right. Siberia. Mm-hmm. But there was no evidence of a struggle or violence inside. It was concerning because a lot of their clothing and most pairs of shoes were inside the tent still. Yeah, you'd want those. That's worrisome. Yeah, you would want those in Siberia. But on the other hand, there's no blood, nothing appears to be in disarray. And no bodies are found. And so while it's curious that they abandoned the tent, apparently in the middle of preparing their dinner, um, it's encouraging to the searchers and the fellow students that had volunteered at this point, they're still hopeful that they're conducting a rescue and not a recovery mission. Right. Yeah. Because again, these are experienced outdoors people. If anyone could survive, you know, eight days in the wilderness with no shoes, right? it's a tall order, but it might have been these people. Right. And until you find a body, you can't assume they're dead. Exactly. Given it, that. Yeah. Those facts. And and again, no sign. The tent was ripped or cut, but no sign of violence. And so okay. I think at the time, they weren't even sure maybe maybe the elements had done it. It just... Right. There was still some hope. It was still early on. Right, because blood would show <laughs> up on the snow. Like if they had been like right. ravaged in right. that tent. Like, and there were sleeping bags and things. Like yeah. it was pretty tight in there because they had nine of them sharing one really big tent. So I think if there had been a struggle in the tent... Surely there would have been some signs of that. Right, right. And since there weren't, that was a hopeful sign. Right. The tent being in a still standing position made them feel reassured that at the very least the hikers hadn't perished in an avalanche. And that Mm. was their big concern. It does seem like it was pretty rare um, to see an avalanche at that slope because it was relatively shallow as far as slopes go. But still, it's Siberia. It's a snowy mountain. That's like the first thing I think you think of when you worry about people dying out there. Right. Unfortunately, their hopes are dashed the following day on February 27th when the searchers follow the nine sets of tracks that led away from the tent and they discover the first two bodies, those of Yuri Doroshenko and Yuri Kravonashenko. Oh. They were lying by a cedar tree about a mile down slope from the tent. It appeared they had tried to make a fire because there were burnt branches in the area and lower limbs on many of the surrounding trees had either been ripped or hacked off, but it was clear that they'd sort of stripped as much as they could. Yep. And he'd even climbed up a bit to try to rip stuff down. I think up as far as five meters. Oh, wow. Some of the trees were cleared. So that's a good, you know, it's a good climb. Yeah. Was there like a little fire pit nearby? Yeah. They could see that the fire, you know, there were remnants of a fire. They could see that branches had been burned. Yep. I think they sort of estimated based on the look of the branches. Okay. How long it might have burned for and they said it couldn't have been more than about two hours okay the heat probably would have been enough to keep them warm enough to not die but only for two hours so that's not very long okay the bodies were found lying side by side one face up and one face down yuri doroshenko was found wearing a sleeveless cotton undershirt a short sleeve shirt shorts and what they call swimming trunks okay not sure exactly what that means, but suffice it to say it's not appropriate outerwear no, for Siberia. That sounds very chilly. He was also wearing blue cotton underwear that were badly ripped, which was curious. Um, I, um, I I was like, 
isn't that a lot of men, right? They just like don't replace their <laughs> we're underwear. We're not talking holes. We're talking like shreds. Oh, okay. And it was only the underwear and not the cotton overshorts or the swim trunks. So that was kind of interesting. That's weird. He was wearing mismatched wool socks on both feet, but no shoes. His ear, nose, and lips were covered with blood, and his upper lip was swollen and bruised. Oh. His right cheek was covered with gray foam, and gray liquid was coming from his mouth. What the fuck? Right. Which, as I was researching, I was like, maybe this is just normal if somebody's in... Oh, is it like if you... Like, I guess you're bile freezing as you... Something Die? like that, maybe. Ooh, I wasn't I don't sure. Like that. I didn't like it either, and I don't think that is very normal. I think, from what I read, um, it was maybe a sign that there had been some sort of a heart issue. Huh. What? Well, does your heart quit when you have hypothermia? No, it looked more like a compression. Like oh. I guess a chest oh. compression might do this to you, like a forceful compression on your chest. Oh, that damn yeti. Strange, right? That damn yeti. We're gonna get back to that. Okay. He has bruising and abrasions all over his body, but none of them are life-threatening, but they are prolific, just all over. Hmm. I won't, I mean, this is going to be a long episode as it is. We're trying to avoid a three-parter, so I won't go into each and every one, but suffice it to say, it didn't just look like a few cuts or scrapes that you might expect from somebody who's hiking, you know, an intense hike like they were doing. It was a little bit bizarre. Okay. Uh, he, He had liver mortis spots on his body, which were not consistent with the position that it was found in oh that's weird which suggests that the body was moved sometime after his blood had stopped circulating aka after he had died the liver mortis that's when your blood pools so like if somebody is laying on their back like their back will get all dark and then if you flip them over later it their back stays stays dark dark because the blood has stopped circulating at that point huh strange who moved him we'll get there Could have been a Yeti. Could have been any number of things. Could have been aliens. We're going to get into all oh, of it. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Yuri number two, Yuri, Yuri Kravonashenko was found dressed similarly in an unprepared state. It was an undershirt, long sleeve shirt, again with the swimming pants. Okay. Something's getting lost in translation here with the swimming pants, but I can't figure <laughs> out what it is. So just bear with me. <laughs> it's like when somebody gets like a Japanese tattoo and it actually says like ramen noodles That's and right. they think it says like peace, love and forever. Yeah. Swimming trunks are actually probably long johns. We all have a pair of swimming pants at home, don't we folks? <laughs> he also had long underpants and one torn sock only on his left foot. Okay. Nothing on his right foot, not even a sock. Not oh. a great place to be no. in Siberia. He, too, did not have any shoes like his companion. He had numerous abrasions and wounds and locations all over his body, but none of them were life-threatening. His hands were particularly torn up, and disturbingly, a chunk of skin from the back of one of his hands was found in his mouth. What? Which suggests that he had perhaps tried to either like awaken his freezing hands by biting them. <sighs> Or that he was trying to stifle a cry, like maybe he was getting beat up or he was trying to hide and he was biting his hand like you might do to not make noise. Oh my God, my mouth is just, I'm doing the thing that Laura does where she is speechless, but that doesn't work for a podcast. So I'm standing here with my, I'm sitting here with my mouth wide open. Just slack jawed. Luckily without a chunk of flesh in your mouth. I do not have a chunk of flesh in my mouth. You're doing better than Yuri number two. Oh my God. And his hand, that his hands were torn up? They're all torn up. Yeah. So there were like big wounds in them and skin was missing. Not so much that 
I mean, it was clear he'd been injured on his hands. Right. But not so much that it was like they were mutilated, but just right. that they there had clearly been injury through use. Maybe from like clawing at the tree. I think that's like what they theorized. ripping the branches down. Yeah, that they had been kind of ripping at the branches. Yeah. They didn't have gloves or like leather gloves, obviously, which you and might... couldn't feel their hands being shredded to pieces. Exactly. Yikes. <laughs> I just got so... I just jumped a mile. What was that about? I don't know. I think I like... I think you laughed and I heard the cat at the same time and my body just malfunctioned. <laughs> I'm a little high strung, if you can't tell. I am like... Hanging on your every word. <laughs> you were possessed by the spirit of Yuri number two. Oh my gosh. The spirit moved me for sure. <laughs> Doing our own tent revival over here. So the relative state of undress, as well as the fact that at least one of the bodies had been moved post-mortem, suggests that these two were the first to die and that their bodies were maybe stripped of their warmest clothing by the remaining living group members. Oh. And that maybe after they'd done so, they tried to lay them respectfully kind of side by side because that was the best they could do for their compatriots. Okay. Well, they couldn't put them both face up. Strange. Mm, I'm just... also picturing that their hands were probably very, very cold. And so I wonder if... I don't know if you've ever been that cold, but oh, you go like, to like do little things like fine motor things, like grip somebody and manipulate their body to oh, turn so them just, over. Like, and you're like, mm, I just have these useless claws like right now. Clubs, yeah. <laughs> right. So huh. I don't know if that's it or if they were conserving energy. Um, I will say that Yuri Doroshenko is the biggest one of the group too. He's very sturdy and quite tall. So it could have just been that it was really hard to flip him over. Okay. Oh, Okay. I, I'm happier with the hypothesis that their clothes, that they were moved post-mortem to take their warmer clothes. It seems that way because lots of, we'll talk about this later as we okay. talk about the state of the other bodies, but many of them are found without proper footwear, but others have significantly more, more clothing. And so okay. it does kind of, and that is what survival school would teach you. You know, you could be sad for your fallen comrade, but if it's right. your life on the line and they're already gone... You don't waste the resources. You strip them of what you can use and you keep trying to survive. So it makes sense that that's what they did. Bitch, I am going to take your Ugg boots, your North Face, and I will snack on your ham hock to survive. I love that you think I have Uggs when I'm clearly a bear paw kind of girl. But thank you so much for acting like I'm not a bargain basement bitch. So... You could get Uggs on Groupon, okay? I might. I just might this year. Your girl's moving on up. Later that same day, the bodies of Igor Dyatlov and Zina Kolmogorova, excuse me, are found about 1,300 yards from the tent, and they are spaced about 300 yards apart from one another. Igor Dyatlov also had some minor cuts and scrapes, and the location of abrasions on his hands suggested to some that he had been in a fight. The scratches were kind of, if you make a fist oh. on that middle... I don't right. know if you call them metatarsals, whatever your finger bones are called. Like I should mid knuckles. I like that in better. Between, in between the two knuckles. I believe that's the, the medical term. science. <laughs> We're in science <laughs> corner now. So some people saw the location of those scrapes and the bruising, and they thought it almost looked like he'd been trying to defend himself oh. in a fight. He was better dressed than the first two with more layers, but he still had no shoes on. One of the layers he was wearing was positively identified later on by Yuri Yudin, which is the third Yuri who oh, turned yeah, back, yeah. Yep. as a shirt of his, which oh. he left for Yuri Doroshenko, which, if you'll remember, is one of the oh, first was, two okay. who's been All found right. deceased. And so um, when Yuri Yudin turned back, he was like, hey, you should have this nice warm shirt of mine, yes. left it for Doroshenko. Yes. And the fact that it's found on Igor means that 
they probably stripped it off right. of Doroshenko after he passed away. Makes sense. So, and the watch on his wrist, on Igor's w- wrist, had stopped at 531. Oh. For whatever that's worth. A couple others had wristwatches on that stopped at different times, just deepening the mystery. We'll get into that. <laughs> Zena was the most appropriately dressed of the group so far, with several layers on top and bottom and multiple hats and pairs of socks, though again, no shoes. She had some minor bruises and abrasions on her body, plus a long, thin, substantial hematoma or bruise, but like worse than a bruise. Mm -hmm. And it was across her lower back. It almost made it look as if she'd been struck with a baton, like a police baton. It was that same shape. Oh. And like that same force would have needed to have been applied to make the bruise as bad as it looked. Okay. I immediately thought of a tent pole and I'm not sure why. You know... Maybe, but the tent was standing and both of the, all the poles were accounted for, as were all of the ski poles. Okay. Oh, ski poles. <laughs> I turned into a snake briefly. Ski poles. <laughs> um, ski pole would have been better, a better guess than tent pole. But tough to rip down a tent pole and beat someone with it. Life finds a way. But then you could put it back. The Yeti is very strong. Very strong. <laughs> apparently very smart. Very resourceful. They should have taken over by now, honestly, (laughs) at this rate. Medical examination revealed that she had not been sexually active ever before her death, which is a strange detail, but I only add it because that's also the case for Ludmila Dubinina, the other woman in the group. And I think that's significant because some of the theories we'll get into later suggest like a group of prisoners escaped from a gulag and accosted the people. And it's like, Maybe, but don't you think they'd raped the women? I know maybe that's too dark of me, but yeah, I just think it suggests that it was a not an encounter with other humans. I'll put it like that. Okay. Or if there were other humans, they were mean enough to murder, but not mean enough to rape the women, which is a specific type of human. Yeah, yeah. Maybe one that you don't find so often in I Siberia. Mean, not there, to judge the fine people of Siberia. <laughs> there are people that just straight up murder and just want it's to true. watch the world burn, but. Yeah. Okay. I'll keep that in the, I'll keep that under my tube. The, <laughs> amazing. The other thing that, that, uh, plays into is that there's another theory that this was just a lover's quarrel gone awry, which is insane. Um, and yeah. again, it's hard to imagine that puppy love that had not even progressed to that physical state would result in nine deaths, just a complete massacre. Right. And who, who, who was in a relationship? Nobody was in a relationship oh, at the okay. time, just... but recall the bear fighting Yuri. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. And he and Zena had been involved previously. So there was, and it seems like some members of the group may have harbored crushes on Zena. Here's a, a sad little grim fact. Yuri, um, the bear fighting Yuri, mm-hmm. had been involved with Zena. That was over. They were on good terms. But it appears another member may have secretly harbored feelings for Zena. When Igor's body was recovered, he was found with a small picture of Zena covertly stashed in one of his pockets, which makes it even more sad that they perished so close to each other. So I think he secretly liked her, but they were very innocent, it sounds like. Like, just sweeties, all of them kind of very innocent for their age range, the way we would look at it now. Well, I mean, also, what was it, like 1950s? 59, yeah, Yeah, exactly. 50s Soviet Union, like, this is not... Everybody's very chaste and very, yes. you know. Um, In fact, don't they use chastity belts back then? I mean, like, <laughs> wasn't that? 
I'm not, I can't speak to that in Russia. <laughs> I I didn't run across any mentions of chastity belts. I think they were more into swimming underwear. But... Oh, the, swim, the swimming pants. <laughs> yes, yes, swimming pants. I'm sorry. The torn underwear with the swimming pants, a classic look. So... <laughs> but I thought that was really sad and very sweet. The Yeti, found... took, the Yeti took the chastity belt. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I'm, I'm going to resell these. <laughs> Oh We're off gosh. the rails. Yeah, we are. Okay, but that's really sweet. That's yeah. So again, I, I I almost didn't mention the not sexually active detail. I'm not yeah. trying to dunk on them after their death or anything. <laughs> but I just think it casts some doubt on both the rapey escaped band of prisoners right. theory and the theory that they would have literally murdered each other, just complete annihilation over like puppy love. It just doesn't that's, seem accurate to me. Or, that's or a probable. lot of people to die for like a little DV incident, incident yeah. in a tent. Yeah, that's... yeah, exactly. Um, so the search continued to no avail for the next several days and none of the other five hikers was found. In the meantime, the bodies of Yuri number one, Yuri number two, Igor and Zina were flown back to Ivdel, which is a, a city that's along the route back to Sverdlovsk. Mm-hmm. And that's where forensic examinations of them began on March 4th. On March 5th, the body of Rustam Slobodan, who the friends all called Rustic, right. was found under a foot of snow. He was actually the same 1,300 feet down the slope from the tent, and he was <laughs> roughly in the middle of Zena and Igor, Oh, which is crazy. It just speaks to the difficulty of the terrain that right. they could they have just walked right over him because he was buried under a foot of snow. That's crazy. Did they find him with a, a hook? Do they, were they looking for them with the hooks? Interestingly, at first they had sent people with metal detectors. Oh. And one of the guys on the ground was like, what? No, we don't need metal detectors. Dead people don't have like coins and buttons. Right. Although maybe they'd have a few, but under that much snow, the metal yeah. detectors aren't going to pick it up. But of course the you know, party officials thought they knew better. Right. They sent a bunch of people with metal detectors. They spent two worthless days basically finding nothing, metal detecting, uh, frigid Siberian slope and then they were like okay we're gonna send the hooks in and they're these sort of poles that have a hook at the end or sort of like a stabby implement at the mm-hmm. end with like a little hook and is so that you, the technical term stabby I implement? believe it is okay. yes I believe it is okay. and you just stab it down into the ground because you need to puncture all that like hard packed yeah, snow and ice right and then you pull up, and if something... Oh, God, if I did that and, like, an arm popped up out of the snow, I'd be like... If something gnarly is on the end, mm-hmm. you you keep digging. Yikes. So Rustam was better dressed than all of the previously found hikers. He was wearing a long-sleeve undershirt, a shirt, a sweater, two pairs of pants, four pairs of socks, and one felt boot on his right foot. Mm. His hands were also bruised and scraped, similar to Igor's, looking possibly like he'd been in a fight, similar location of the scraping and the bruising on the hands. He had a non-fatal skull fracture that the medical examiner opined was caused by blunt force. While it wouldn't have killed him, it would have definitely knocked him for a loop and confused him a little bit, slowed him down a little bit. And his skin was ripped on one of his forearms. Oh, I don't like the term ripped. Yeah, pretty gross. When referring to skin. Me either. Gave me the ick. Um, is there a theory for that? Other than a Yeti? I'm just going to, I'm going to stick with the Yeti. It really, it really checks all the boxes. <laughs> it does, right? His watch, which he was also wearing a watch, and his watch was stopped at 8.45 a.m. So found right next to Igor Dyatlov, whose watch was stopped at 5.31. A.m. or P.M.? Or it didn't say. It's a great say. question. Oh, it, it probably wasn't say. like <laughs> 
31 a.m. on the other one. So that one was was answered. You guys have to check out if you're curious about this because I'm leaving a ton out just because I have to. Otherwise, we'll never this will never end and this will just become the Diet Love Pass podcast. (laughs) But you should go to dietlovepass.com because there is just everything. You can read all the autopsy reports, all the field reports from searchers on the ground, and so because of who's documenting and when, sometimes there's more details than others. It's not always consistent. So this one just said 531. So sorry. I didn't mean to ask it like a dumb question. (laughs) No, it's a great question. Because also probably watches like that didn't denote AM or PM. What I went ahead and did is what I do like when I'm writing a brief and the facts don't really line up for me and I just blew right by it. Perfect. I'm just just going to ignore that I don't know AM or PM and hope nobody asks me. And I'm just going to ask you and fuck it all up. (laughs) So you're welcome. Yep. Perfect duo. Anyways. On March 8th, Yuri Yudin travels to Ivdel from Sverdlovsk, um, and that's Yuri number three who had turned back, where he affirmatively identifies the hiking supplies that had been left for the return trip. So we talked about how they left behind a lot of the heavier oh, stuff right. in their packs. They had found that along the way to searching for the hikers. Oh, and there, what was it? It wasn't a guitar. It was a... Mandolin. Mandolin. A Thank mandolin. You. Okay, yes. He also identified the tent and the belongings found on and around the hikers, and to the extent that he could, said what belonged to who in the group. Okay. On March 9th and 10th, funerals for the first five hikers are held, and sadly, Yuri cannot attend because he's still in Ivdel assisting with the investigation. Oh. The funeral was also for Rustin, but because his remains had been found more recently than the others, he was not buried right away, and on March 11th, the forensic examination of his remains began. The funerals were attended by hundreds of mourners, um, and it, they really made quite an impression on people. It was a very sad story. It got, t- you know, tons of nat- national attention. Mm-hmm. Um, a 12-year-old attendee who was a villager um, in the place where the funerals were held said that the appearance of the bodies made such an impression on him that he became obsessed. It became a lifelong obsession for him because they looked so unnatural. Oh. Their skin was very bizarrely tanned and darkly, like, purpley tanned colored. Ooh. And their hair was white. It had turned white, which is apparently oh. something that can happen if you're exposed to radiation. Oh. So put a pin in that because we'll come back to that. Oh, but that it, would save me money because my hair doesn't bleach well. So should I just, <laughs> just start go ahead playing, and on, playing just with some uranium? Head on over to Siberia on the wrong night and the government will take care of it for you. Oh my God. So they, um, he was so just his curiosity was so piqued by this that it became a lifelong obsession. And he went on to found the Dyatlov Foundation, which was instrumental in giving information for many of the sources I relied on. Okay. It put people in um, in touch with Yuri Yudin and with other key sources and um, effectively was the only link to primary sources at a time when the government was still being very secretive about wow. whatever was available. Though the search continues, no remains are found after rustics for well over a week. On the evening of March 17th, however, there are numerous reports in the region from people who see glowing orbs in the night sky. One of the people who saw the orbs was actually a member of the search party in the northern Urals. The reports were deemed credible because others who'd seen them included soldiers and meteorologists. So this wasn't just Hmm. some 
lonely dude out there hiking, seeing things, you know, like sailors used to think manatees were mermaids. These are scientists being like, what the hell is that? (laughs) Further, this was not the first time this type of sighting had been documented. It had also happened in the same region a month before on February 17th. And the orbs made such an impression on the hikers who observed them in February that some who attended the funerals of the first five hikers actually sought out their families to report the phenomena to them and suggested that they might be related to what caused the hikers' untimely deaths. Huh. One of the primary sources said that this, it was just a, started off small at first, a glowing white spot, brilliantly bright in the sky, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it was terrifying. He said he thought another planet was colliding with the Earth. That's how crazy it <laughs> that was. That is insane. And so something to think about these orbs. I'm just noting them because chronologically this is where they fall. Okay. We're going to get into them a little bit more later. Okay. And then again, they were spotted by search team members on March 31st. So three sightings on three different dates right around the time when the hikers met their untimely end. It makes me think of seriously when I used to see like spotlights in the sky or like when ESPN does their like crazy spotlights <laughs> and people are like, there's UFOs in the sky. And people are like, no, ESPN's doing like a special little ditty tonight. That's just their lights. I saw something crazy the other night and was like, oh my God, the aliens are here. It's really happening. And then I went inside and Googled because I was sure that something crazy was happening. And it was like, tonight's the peak Perseid meteor shower night. Oh. And I was like, no. Glad I didn't uh, <laughs> war of the worlds myself because. <laughs> you didn't pack your bag. Yeah. <laughs> so weeks later, there had been no progress in finding the four remaining hikers. However, the forensic autopsy on the first five hikers, which were the two Yuris, Igor, Zena, and Rustam, determined that hypothermia was the cause of death for all. This was unsurprising given given the improperly dressed state they were Mm -hmm. all found in. Though the result was unsatisfactory to many because it didn't account for all the other injuries to their bodies. Right. Be that as it may, that's what the official conclusion was. But at least, I mean, in terms of the mystery of it, at least it wasn't like drowning and you're like what the yeah, fuck true. i mean like you at know least there like, was a competent examination right, right the injuries were documented they just didn't hazard a guess as to what might have caused them right and it wasn't the cause of death so they right. just note them and move on exactly as searches continued so did the criminal investigation and a professional seamstress was actually brought in to examine the tent As the searches continued, so did the criminal investigation, and a professional seamstress was actually brought in to examine the tent at the prosecutor's office, and she opined that the slashes to the tent were not rips, but in fact cuts made with a knife or a blade, and that they were made from the inside. Oh. That's important because it tended to minimize the likelihood of some sort of violent confrontation with animals or other humans who might have cut their way in and taken the group by surprise. Because that was an early theory, just because of how strange it was that they would have dropped everything and fled out into the night. I see why that was a tempting theory. But once you're sure that it was cut from the inside, that opens up a whole new mystery. I think one of my favorite things, especially in criminal cases, is the experts that you get in the cases, like an expert seamstress who is going to opine as to, you know, how the cuts were made. You could have like an expert button maker who like opines, like just, you could just have the craziest expert witnesses depending on the weird circumstances of the case. And the documentary, which... 
was interesting, although a little bit more sensational than the book, still worth a watch. They actually questioned the validity of the expert opinion. They're like, okay, so someone's Nona got flown in to be like, I would know a knife cut from the inside anywhere. And they were like, good enough, case closed. So fair enough. But I mean, they got somebody. They did get somebody. <laughs> it's kind of like you getting somebody for this podcast. Sometimes you just got to get just grab whatever's off out the there. street. Yeah, you just grab anybody off the street. <laughs> so for what it's worth, it's not, it's, there's not uncritical acceptance of this. Okay. But I think by and large, most people believe she was as suited as anybody to give an expert opinion in this sort of niche area. Okay, I'm buying it. Whatever. Me too. <laughs> She's smarter than me. I'm going to go with it. On May 3rd, a Monsi volunteer, and remember Monsi are the indigenous people right. that live in that region. Um, so this was a volunteer searcher, uncovered a sort of crude shelter constructed of piled up branches in the snow near the Ospia River. Further excavation in the snow and slush near the creek led to the discovery of the final four hikers. This oh. is months later. Lyudmila Dubanina, Sasha Zoltaryov, who is also Semyon, who is also Alexander. He's the older interloper who sort of joined them at the very last minute on the train. Yes. There's also Alexander Kolevitov and Nikolai Thibault Brignol. They're at the bottom of a ravine, and they're discovered the next day on May 4th. Oh, and by the way, one of our gremlins told us on Discord that Sasha is the um, typical nickname for Alexander. Interesting. Something, yeah, something like that. Like, Sasha is, like, a common nickname for that name. But also, his name wasn't really Alexander. It was Semyon. I don't think that Sasha is the accepted nickname for Semyon. But if... But it, it almost sounds like it makes more sense than Alexander. It would. But then somebody else made the point kind of like Margaret and Peggy. And somebody else was like, I wasn't today years old when I found out that Peggy Literally was the same thing. Margaret. Oh, really? Yep. I was just like, what now? <laughs> Did you see my face? Today I learned. <laughs> the more you know. <laughs> With the rainbow and yes. the shooting star. Yes. The state of these remains was significantly more decayed than the first five, obviously, given the combination of significantly more time passing. Right. And it's starting to thaw now. Mm -hmm. So they're next to sort of a creek bed, which is already kind of a gross place as far as remains go. You're going to decompose right. a lot faster in that setting. Plus the thaw, plus more time has gone by. So they're in pretty rough shape. Because of this, it was imperative that their remains be transported to the medical examiner's office in Ivdel immediately to allow for examination before further decomp could occur. Despite this, the helicopter pilot refused to transport the remains without zinc-lined coffins to keep him safe from any biohazard posed by the leaking body fluids. Ooh. The coffins were brought in on May 8th, and that same day, the final four bodies were transported to Ivdel for autopsy. Some felt that the bodily fluid thing was actually just kind of a, a front and that the military actually knew that there had been secret weapon testing in the area and that mm. they were fearful of exposure to radioactivity that might have been, may or may not have been part of the weapons that were tested. Would zinc stop radiation? I don't think so. I did some like Googling on this because I thought, why would they specifically request those? Right. And it actually turns out that's just the standard, not to be... Um, morbid but um when let's say like troops uh perish overseas their remains that's just the standard for transporting a body oh, okay over any sort of long distance particularly in air travel i don't know why that okay. is it sounded like a special request it 
No, I think it's actually pretty standard. So people will look at that and sort of be like, oh, that's a sign that they didn't want to be exposed to radiation. Oh. But I couldn't really see anything that suggested that it Yeah, would what would be the alternative? Just put them in radiation. like body bags while they were all like leaking? That doesn't yeah. seem like, I feel like body bags are more reserved for whole. If I'm that helicopter pilot, I'm like, yeah, yeah. But one more day is not going to, I mean, they're already dead and yeah. gross. I'm going to go think, ahead and insist yeah. on the coffin. <laughs> no, I think that was fair. I'm gonna, I think so too. Yeah, it does seem to be the standard even today. So I right. don't. Some people have um, sort of conspiratorial opinions about that. I don't know if it really suggests anything other than the guy was kind of grossed out by having yeah just a bunch of dead people leaking fluids everywhere in his Ooh. helicopter. That's a tight space, a helicopter. So it's <laughs> <laughs> a lot going on in there. Yeah, yeah. The forensic examination of the final four bodies noted violent injuries to three of them. So Luda Dubanina was found better dressed for the conditions, but again, without footwear. One of the layers she was wearing belonged to Yuri Kravonashenko, again, adding credence to that theory that the first two were stripped by their compatriots and they had perished first. Were all of their shoes still in the tent? All of them. There was actually, okay. I'm sorry, two of them had footwear. We're going to okay. get there. Oh, they had the, one of them had the felt boot on. Yeah. So I think it's pretty standard when you're doing this kind of like really cold weather outdoor um, exposure for prolonged periods of time. You don't just use a pair of boots, especially not back then when they didn't have, you know, Marmot and um, yeah. Patagonia and stuff yeah. like that that makes like really serious outerwear. So what they would do is make custom like felt booties to keep their feet warm and then they'd buy their boots a little bigger. Oh, okay. And so they'd wear multiple gotcha. layers and then really thick wool socks and things like that. So the ones that have been found so far will have socks, and then there was the one with the felt booty, but nobody had proper boots on. Okay, so, so far, all the boots were in the tent. So far. There okay. are two that will be found with something closer okay. to actual proper footwear, but okay. nobody yet. I just wanted to make sure that, like, all their shoes weren't missing. No, yeah. It was, so I'd be like, the Yeti sold those, too. <laughs> the Yeti is out here taking soles and taking boots. <laughs> Check Poshmark, okay? <laughs> exactly. Check the paper trail. <laughs> Uh, one of the layers she was wearing belonged to Yuri. We talked about that. Yep. She was found missing both of her eyes. Oh, and, no. No. And her tongue. No. No, no. No explanation is they, provided. Like, scooped out? It doesn't sound like it, but the autopsy doesn't get into that much detail. They're just like, P.S., no eyes or tongue. No further comment on why. <laughs> I feel like it warrants further comment. I think so too. I I'm, think so I'm too. interested in the the footnote on that autopsy report. I think a lot of this warrants further comment. Okay. Could mm, could they have like decayed the tongue? I feel like your tongue would not decay out of your mouth like that. One theory, um, and there does seem to be a good amount of scientific consensus that at least as far as soft tissue goes, remember they were sort of in this slushy area yeah and there would be like you know there's like a little river running through there lots right. of microbial activity so not crazy that your soft tissue like your eyes and the and the flesh around your orbital bones for example that your eyes sit in would be worn away wouldn't more be gone I, mm, the tongue I is what's weird to me i don't like it i don't like any of it i don't it. like it either and be, i think partially because of how disturbing it was and also because the autopsy really didn't say much more about it this is very disturbing to people, and it springs forth many theories about what could have happened. Yeah. In all likelihood, it's probably just decay. They've been out there for many months. There's a lot of microbial activity, but it will come up later in some of the theories that we talk about. Okay. She has bruising to one of her thighs, and her nose is broken. 
Her cause of death is stated as hemorrhage into the right atrium of the heart, multiple fractured ribs, and internal bleeding. It is clear that her injuries were caused by tremendous force. They just don't know what. What the fuck? So already it was a little creepy, right? What was going on with all these people? But this is where the injuries get just horrifying and sort of defy description. And they're further away than everybody else, right? It's almost like they they were out of the normal radius, right? Yeah, they were. So they were down like like in a ravine, basically. Okay. And it looked like they had constructed a shelter of some sort. Oh, God. So then there's Semyon slash Sasha slash Alexander yep. Zoltaryov. He was found appropriately clothed for conditions. It was apparent from his clothing and the relative safety of the shelter in which he was found that he probably hadn't died from the cold. He also was missing his eyes. But not his tongue. Not his tongue. He had his tongue. So again, a question of, uh, well, if this is normal microbial activity, then why isn't his tongue also well, yeah, why missing? Is it inc- why is it inconsistent? Exactly. He had an eight centimeter by six centimeter wound to the side of his head, which ex- had skull bone exposed. Oh, so a pretty significant wound. He also had five broken ribs and they had two fracture lines. So he took a tremendous blow to the chest. He was also found with a camera around his neck. The existence of this camera was reportedly a surprise to Yuri Yudin. He believed Sasha had only had the one camera he'd seen him using throughout the trip, and that camera had been found back in the tent by the search party. Mm-hmm. The second camera had apparently been concealed throughout the whole trip, and it was found only after Semyon had died. Hmm. Unfortunately, the film was so water-damaged that none of the photos could be processed. Ugh. Uh, and then Semyon was also found holding a pen in one hand and a small notepad in the other. But whatever he was trying to record, he hadn't been able to write anything down and the pages were all blank. That's all alleged, though, because a military commander assisting with the search reportedly grabbed the pad, looked at it, cursed and spat. He's written nothing and then failed to put the pad into evidence. It has not been seen again and is reportedly absent from the evidence boxes to this day. Oh. So remember the thing about how he's an older man and he was in the Red Army and his background's a little sketchy and he's got like 10 names. Yeah. Secret cameras. I don't, I don't like it when evidence goes missing. I don't either. It mm. makes my lawyer heart very sad. Mm-hmm. And then there's Alexander Kolevitov. He also was well prepared for the cold. He's found in many layers, one of which was a jacket that was unbuttoned and unzipped, which seems like a strange thing to do for somebody who the medical examiner ultimately concluded died of exposure to the cold. So he's the only one in this final group of four who is deemed to have died of hypothermia. Okay. But he has significant injuries. Among his injuries are a broken nose, an open wound behind his ear, and a deformed neck that might have been the result of a fight. It's not clear if it's like a broken neck or if it's just twisted or sprained, but they describe it as deformed. The autopsy noted but did not try to explain the injuries, stating only that Kalevatov's death was, quote, the result of low temperature, end quote, and that the cause of his death, quote, was through violence, end quote. So... It's not hypothermia. Just a cold, violent death. Oh my gosh. The the Venn diagram of those two things meeting, I don't know what the middle is, but that's, oh. they didn't know either. They didn't bother to name it, but. It's a Yeti. <laughs> you know. I'm so sorry. It might have been. Yeah. It's the abominable snowman, right? Cold and violent. <laughs> it might have been, or Sasquatch in some communities. Yeah. The final one found is Nikolay Thibault-Brignol, who was well-dressed for the cold. Again, did not appear to have died of hypothermia, but of a multi- of massive 
multiple skull fractures. He also had bruising on his upper lip and hemorrhaging from one of his forearms. The autopsy excluded an accidental fall from a standing position as a cause of his head trauma because it would have required far greater force. Nikolay was wearing two watches on his left arm. One had stopped at 8.14 and the other at 8.39. And before you ask... (laughs) I do not know if it's AM or PM. One arm was AM and the other was PM. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. But actually both watches were on his left arm. Okay. So, I mean, I wear two watches. A two watch man. Do I you wear... have them both on one arm? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> that's weird. But I have a Fitbit. That's, that's a watch. Weird. That's weird. And it's not weird to wear watch. two watches. Just okay. to wear them both on the same okay. arm. <laughs> Draw on a line here. <laughs> Testing for radiation exposure was performed on the organs and the clothing of the four remaining hikers. I'm not sure what prompted people to do this. I think early on there were theories that perhaps some sort of weapon testing had happened, probably because of those reports about the orbs. Right. And even though the prosecutor's office (laughs) makes a very hasty conclusion at the end of this, I think the investigator was very invested in trying to find the truth. Okay. Well, was it the white hair too? Did they know about the white (laughs) hair at this point? (laughs) Yeah, because that was on the first four bodies. Yeah, so So, maybe that they'd be like, that's weird. Yeah, and just the the tremendous force of some of these injuries right? Um, and the variety of injuries. They just wanted to... They're like, it had to be if it would a turn nuclear in. rocket. <laughs> exactly. On May 22nd, the funerals for the final four hikers were held. They were actually closed casket and only the family members were permitted to attend. No public allowed, unlike the first five. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think about the closed casket and think like, what is the government trying to hide? But also the families. And the families were upset, but um, the examiner took pity on one of them and allowed him to see his daughter, and he fainted promptly from how Mm -hmm. just disturbing it was. That's not an open casket situation. It really wasn't. And on that diatlovepass.com site, there are postmortem photos, so if you guys are um, grotesquely interested in things like that, you can check them out. Um, and we may share a few of them, but there's like a ton of photos on this site. Yeah. So if you want to get the whole the whole picture of, of what people look like after that much time and why it was so jarring, um, they're online. See, I I don't. And then I'm going to <laughs> and I'm going to be like, oh, it's kind of gross. Yeah. It's, and also very, I don't know. I just I wouldn't Sad want to see it disturbing. if it was my family yeah, member. No. I'd be all set. But again, because of it being Soviet Russia, everyone's like, they're trying to hide something from yeah. us. It's like in this case, they might just be trying to not have everybody barf and faint at the funeral. Right. <laughs> yeah. They're trying to save you. <laughs> On May 29th, the results of the radiation testing came back and the radiologist reported finding higher than normal levels of radiation on articles of Luda and Kolevitov's clothing, but just their clothing, not their organs. Okay. This was a curious finding, but in the eyes of the local prosecutor's office, it didn't matter because in fact, the criminal investigation had been abruptly and prematurely concluded the day before on May 28th. Naturally. With the maddeningly vague conclusion that the hikers' deaths had been caused by, quote, an unknown compelling force, end quote. Okay. Could <laughs> Nothing been... else to see here, boys. Let's pack it up and go. <laughs> They're like, it was something horrendous. It was something incredibly violent. And there is no rhyme or reason to it, but job well done. All in a day's work. Yeah. Wow. So now that we've gotten through all that, let's talk about the theories of what might have happened and get ready because I'm going to be using the word theorized quite a bit for the remainder of this episode. We are now officially getting into Kate's conspiracy corner. Okay. And if you're picturing me as the Greek dude with the wild hair on that History Channel show, Ancient Aliens, then you've got the right idea because that's where we're going here. 
One of the first theories was that the Monsi tribe, members of the Monsi tribe, had killed in some sort of violent confrontation the okay. hikers. This came up when injuries began to be observed on the recovered bodies of the hikers. I think because there were so many injuries that people just assumed there had to be some sort of confrontation. And right. who else is out there in this remote area? It's pretty much just Monsi and, you know, occasional hikers. Mm-hmm. And because this was the hardest month of the year to attempt this hike, there really weren't many other hikers out there. Though the Monsi were widely known to be a peaceful people, it was theorized that perhaps the hikers had unwittingly trespassed on land that was sacred to them and the murders were some sort of retribution for that. A grim fact about the Monsi is that they also discovered that if reindeer, they're reindeer herders, that's part of their deal. If the reindeer eat these highly toxic psychedelic mushrooms that apparently are the only thing that can grow in Siberia, (laughs) that humans can drink the reindeer pee... And they can still feel the intoxicating effects of the mushrooms without being poisoned because the reindeer kidneys have come in and done all the hard work of filtering out all the toxins for them. Oh my God. Do the reindeer survive? I guess so because they're reindeer herders. So it feels like it would be pretty counterproductive to just like poison all of your reindeer to get high. I mean, stranger things have happened. Well, I mean, I wouldn't put it past them in Siberia because like what else is there to what do? What else is there to do, right? Oh my God. And who, who is the first one to figure it out? I was just going to say, I'm not even sure I want to know how this was discovered and it's not clear clear from any of the sources I've read. But the moral of the story is that humanity will just always find a way to get high. And this was before cannabis legalization. (laughs) Let's be honest. You know it was someone out on a super long hike. They got thirsty. They had their reindeer. (laughs) And then they were like, I'm going to the moon. I got to go back and tell everybody. I'm going to just give this a try. (laughs) Yeah, it's like how they discovered artificial sweetener. They were trying to make some totally other thing. I'm like, who was licking the beakers in the science room? And was like, damn, that's not bad. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know that that's actually, here's a fun grim fact. Um, Did you know that they actually use stuff like that to test um, breathing apparatuses? So if you're testing like a gas mask or a mask, if you rip open like a Splenda packet in front of you and you can taste the sweetness, then oh, it's, it's not, not like secure. Exactly. So maybe that's how they discovered it. It's they could taste it. It's great for the lungs could, yeah. to just breathe in the particulate <laughs> of Splenda. Um, so anyway, that's an interesting fact. I'm not sure <laughs> if the propensity to trip on reindeer pee factored into the people oh thinking God. that the Monsi may have killed them, but I could see it because it's like, hey, who knows? These guys get a little twisted on some reindeer pee. They decide they want vengeance. If I had a nickel. <laughs> you know, <laughs> happens to the best of us. So anyone who had encountered the Monsi, including many of the avid outdoors people who were on the hike, vouched for them as good and helpful people who had never been violent previously. And hiking expeditions to Dead Mountain were common, so if they really hated people trespassing, you'd think that they would have made some noise about that before right. now. They and they, have were, just... they were helping the search, right? Yes, that's the other thing. So they were helping with the search. Some said the carvings in the trees might have been signs that the area was sacred, but again, the Monsi said this wasn't the case when they were interviewed. Oh my God, that's like, you just have people being like, oh my God, all these th- th- they have all these crazy things. And then you actually talk to people, they're like, no, actually, those are just, that's like, it says like trail two. That's in exactly like, right. Oh my God. Experienced hunters were like, no, no, the notches are either trailblazes to sort of, you know, like when you go on yeah. a hike and you see little markers to keep you on the right trail, or they were to mark the route for other tribesmen or to let them know about conditions. <laughs> so it would be like, hey, there's deer here, or hey, watch out, yeah. there's a ravine ahead, or... We have three members in our hiking party. Most of the signs were well understood. The hikers did make a note of them in their mm-hmm. diary. And I think that's why people run wild with this. But the right. note was more like, 
it would be such a good idea to catalog and document all of these right. symbols and make sort of a like a dictionary of what they all mean because that would be a good resource for other people going right. forward. They weren't like, what are these mysterious hex signs? <laughs> these insidious markings on yeah. the tree. <laughs> they knew what some of them were. They just right. didn't know all of them. And yeah. they were like, oh, it would be good for people to know these things. But people like to run wild with yeah, that. People, yeah, people on the internet. Um, and given that the tent was eventually determined to have been cut from the inside, and there were also only nine sets of footprints found leading away from the tent, one from each of the hikers, leaving none for any alleged Monsi attackers, this one is pretty much, you can rule it out. Unless they were swinging from the trees or flying with their reindeer, you know? <laughs> Another shout out to the crazy documentary, though, is that they do interview some Monsi people, and one of the ladies has, like, an ancient doll that's wearing a dress that has blood on it, and they're like... This is clearly the blood of the hiker. Oh my God. <laughs> they get way out there, but I was like, what is that blood doll, though? No. Yeah. <laughs> it's what a is, little... Yeah. It's something. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the orbs. I'm not okay. going to lie. This one really got my conspiracy spidey senses tingling in the beginning. All right. It seemed crazy to me that the orbs were spotted three different nights, right around the same time the hikers went missing, all in the same rough area. While aliens are one orb-related theory, and by the way, that's like the beginning and the end of it. They're like, it was aliens. (laughs) (laughs) Like, they don't really flesh it out any further as far as I could tell. The one that I liked and found more plausible was that the orbs were some sort of secret testing of a new weapon by the Russian government. Mm. This one kind of checks all the boxes um, from afar. It explains the radioactivity that was detected and why it might have only been on the clothing, but it hadn't yet like seeped into to the body's organs. Yeah. Why the hikers might have left their tent and why that mysterious final photo on one of the cameras. We talked, I think, briefly in the last episode about frame 34. And it's this photo that shows like a blurry ball of light. It's super out of focus, but it kind of looks like a ball of light falling. Is that the one that you said it looks like their heads are like silhouetted in front of it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, although I can't see that in the I picture. I don't see that either. So that the, that's sure. the one you sent me today. I yeah, didn't see that. I'm not sure what they meant about that. but And they may have been talking about a different photo, but I don't think so because this is the one that supposedly shows this ball of light. Okay. I don't see it. I just see an out of frame, out of focus. It kind of just looks like a mistake picture to me. Like, like somebody's fingers on it when a flash goes yeah, off. Yeah, or something. But I don't know if I would look at that and go, like, oh, clearly this is aliens. Right. No, and I've seen American Horror Story. If it was aliens, the two girls would have been impregnated. So I just started rewatching that season, and it is insane. I busted that conspiracy (laughs) wide open. You did. It's true. Um, The theory goes that perhaps the testing was being done in this remote area, and the hikers were too close unwittingly and saw something Mm. they weren't supposed to have Mm -hmm. seen, and they were either killed for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, or they were killed by the weapons themselves. Okay. But a quick logical analysis makes this theory look a lot less sexy. When you look at the details, it doesn't really make sense. Perhaps the noise and the light would have drawn the hikers out from their tent, but given the lack of evidence of any explosion in the near vicinity... Would it have really been enough to frighten them half-dressed into fleeing from their tent and cutting their way out from the inside? Yeah, that's what... And not only that, the complete... I could see if they all died of hypothermia. Yes. Or if they, you know, all had similar... Like, their wounds are, like, all over the map. Yeah, and then some of them just have normal abrasions and cuts, but no fatal wounds. Yeah. And if they'd been killed for being in the wrong place at the wrong time by Russian soldiers, then... um, why were only some of them 
wounded and the rest died of hypothermia. Like the soldiers right. just killed three of them and we're like, meh, nature yeah. will take care of the other five. Yeah, literally. That <laughs> I'm sure the president won't mind if we leave five of them alive and just hope that they die. <laughs> They're like, and we want to take um, four eyes and one tongue. Yeah. Well, there was something to that though. Apparently the, the reason, one of the reasons speculated why Liuda's tongue was missing and no one else's was that she was an outspoken um, political sort of dissident. Oh. And so people thought, eh, maybe this wasn't, you know, microbes eating her tongue. Maybe it was a message. Well, Sasha's tongue was still there, but his eyes weren't, right? It was Sasha? Yes, but yeah. people thought, oh, but also Sasha was suspected to be a KGB agent. And so maybe those two were mutilated in ways, you know, mm. that were much more violent than others. But again... Hmm. Leaves many, many questions. Many men. <laughs> many, 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 many men. Wish death pumped me. Oh my God. I don't cry no more. <laughs> so sorry, everyone. <laughs> I was sitting there wondering tonight before I came here, like, what's going to be the song that she bursts into? And that one was not on my it bingo card. It wasn't on your list? No. <laughs> it was not on my bingo card. You know, I just, I got to keep it fresh. <laughs> <laughs> You're full of surprises. <laughs> Why, um, and then also, why was there no sign of a struggle at the tent site? If they mm. had been violently confronted, why did they cut their own way out from the inside? Why wasn't it the other way around? It, it just, yeah. a lot of stuff doesn't make sense. Again, why did the Russian equivalent of the CIA do such a poor job and leave more than half of the group still alive? The only thing I could think of is if, like, somebody wandered on up there and they, like, let them into the tent and then, like, a kerfuffle ensued. Maybe. And someone had to cut their way out. It doesn't explain it. That explains one out of 7,000 missing elements. So I can't. And none of the deaths resembled, of the violent deaths, none of them resembled execution style killing, which is kind of what you'd expect from, you know, highly trained, like black ops military guys. They wouldn't be like, I don't even know what kind of force they would have had to apply to the chests of these people to fracture like half of their ribs in multiple places. But suffice it to say that just this, this is like a Monet of a theory. It looks great from far away, but then you get up close and it's just a big old mess. And shout out to anyone who just caught on to my clueless reference there. And Marina, I can tell from your face. The Monet? Yeah, the movie Clueless. Remember how she calls a guy a Monet? Oh, no, but I actually She's was like, thinking... he looks great from far away, but you get up close and he's just a big mess. <laughs> okay. I really loved your analogy because I was like, that is artistic and beautiful, <laughs> but I didn't... I was clueless About that it was from movie clueless. clueless. You're too young. So I this is you. This is how Laura feels when I make all the movie references <laughs> and I just look at her and she's like, was I supposed to get something? Yes. Now I know what it's like. I'm getting a taste waiting, of my own medicine. I, I was waiting for the laugh and I was like, it's not coming. Nope. It's tough. It's a tough crowd. (laughs) It is. Somebody somewhere is laughing or like we'll get people on the discord that are like, I I thought it was hilarious. I was screaming at my phone. And I'm like, I could hear you. I could hear you. (laughs) I felt it. Um, Oh, and so one more thing to mention since we're kind of dispelling the likelihood of a human or an animal attack. Another theory that raised some interesting questions is whether this was a murder occasioned by Semyon slash Sasha's potential secret role as a KGB agent. His advanced age, his prior service in the Red Army, and his interesting tattoos, one of which allegedly includes a string of letters across his chest that has no known meaning in the Cyrillic alphabet, led many to speculate that he was actually an intelligence... (laughs) Intelligence? Intelligence agent 
Perhaps he had to get to the mountain for a mission, and that's why he was so eager to insert himself into this new group when his former expedition plans fell through. Like, instead of just being like, oh, I'll go with you guys when you reschedule, he was like, I'm joining a group of strangers. So they don't know what the letters were? No. What is the Cyrillic alphabet? That's the Russian language. They have a whole different alphabet if you've ever seen oh, words they written out don't in correspond Russian. to letters? Oh, no, no, they do. I just mean it's a different... It just isn't like A, B, C, D, E, F. They have different characters. It's like the Chinese alphabet or something. Okay. And I'm sorry if it's Mandarin. Again, no offense to anybody. <laughs> I'm very illiterate. Like I said, I can barely speak American English. <laughs> not exactly worldly about other languages, yeah, but I no. am trying. Okay. So, so it, so it meant there nothing were three, in the Cyrillic okay. alphabet. It didn't spell any known word. It didn't stand for anything that anybody knew. Okay. So they knew what it meant, but it just doesn't mean anything to us because the letters don't correspond to our alphabet. No. Okay. No one knows what it means. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> when I saw your face, you went, okay. And I'm like, it's, she's not, it's not sinking in. <laughs> Wait, but isn't it letters? It's just letters, but it would be like if you had like Z, Q, P, L, M. Like okay, nobody no, knows what that means. They don't know what it means, but they know what the letters well, sure, are. sure, sure. Okay. Like... <laughs> very, just a very who's on first situation going on here. <laughs> no, it wasn't like ancient aliens, like runes or something. It was, it was known letters. They just didn't spell anything. <laughs> We had a bit of a disconnect there. So much so. <laughs> we got it. Okay. So it didn't, they knew what it, they knew what it said, but it didn't mean anything. Yes. It was meaningless. I thought you were like, <laughs> so the word was a word in Russian, but not in English. I'm like, no girl, it wasn't a word in either language. Oh, no, no. But they knew what it meant. Like you said, it wasn't like alien runes. Like they could exactly. read. <laughs> we're crushing it. Oh my God. So funny. <sighs> okay. <laughs> that tickled me. Furthermore, the gray foam found on Yuri Doroshenko's cheek and coming from his mouth started the speculation that before death, someone or something was pressing on his chest cavity. This forceful method was common for interrogation by Stalin's secret police and special forces. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So again, kind of adding into some, you know, giving some fuel to that KGB government-involved assassination speculation. Did they do toxicology reports? Not that I saw. Because doesn't, like, cyanide make you foam at the mouth? They tested for a couple of things, but I'm not sure the depth of a tox screen back then. Right. Um, But they didn't have any alcohol in their systems. Okay. They're like, I sniffed him and he didn't smell like almonds. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. He didn't have the the half-moon fingernails. Yeah. Um, But but the compression to the chest could have also been... uh, caused by a nasty fall from a tree, which does appear to fit with some of the other evidence of bruising and abrasions on Doroshenko's body. Okay. Combined with the fact that the branches were stripped up as high as five meters, it could have been that he climbed and fell down while he was trying to strip, you know, branches to make the fire and make their shelter. Yeah. While it seemed likely, for the reasons already mentioned, that this wasn't some government-sanctioned killing, many questions about Semyon's origins remain unanswered. Why did he have three names? And why, when they exhumed his body decades later, did the DNA of the corpse in his grave not share any familial DNA with his family member who had provided a sample? 
Oh, that's um, that's weird. Just a small detail. No yeah. DNA match at all. They had done a reconstruction of his skull based on photographs. And actually, that the technology there is wild. They can do some really crazy stuff with mm. reconstructing faces. And so whoever was buried there looked very similar to um, Semyon, but shared no DNA, which only fuels that KGB agent speculation. Yeah, or was he, like, adopted and didn't know it? An alternate explanation is that he may have actually died in World War II and somebody else just took his identity. Oh, yeah, they did that shit back then. It was in Mad Men. Like, Don Draper did it. Sorry, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched this 13-year-old show. (laughs) I did not get to that part. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Should we cut that out? I'm so sorry. Uh, You might want to cut that out to not ruin the whole show for people. Some people haven't seen it. It was in like the first season. Was it? Yeah. Okay, I got through the first season. Or maybe the second. I don't know. There was a lot of seasons. I've lived a whole life since then. (laughs) So yeah, they sure did. And while it may be that a violent human or animal attack does not fully explain what happened to the hikers, the possibility of some sort of intelligence connection really can't be completely ignored. There's just too much there. I don't know if it makes a unified theory of anything, but there's too much going on there to totally rule it out. Can I just say I'm really glad that we're no longer living in the era where you just literally change your name and write it on a piece of paper and you're like, this is, this is who I am now. People could just say they were going out for cigarettes and just move one town over and have a whole new family. Like the amount, and their children would never see them again. <laughs> that and like the amount of crime that people must have gotten away with yes. is wild to me to even consider. There's a great stand-up comedy bit about this is where it? he's like, criminal investigations in the 1800s. Somebody was like, they left a pool of blood. And they're like, gross, wipe it up. <laughs> Yeah. He's like, gangsters literally used to like shoot their name into the side of the building and be like, you'll never catch me. (laughs) And they were right. (laughs) Yeah, no, literally. It's so crazy. They couldn't get, what, Al Capone on anything but tax evasion? Yeah, unless unless you don't pay your taxes. And then the only thing in life that's certain. is coming to call. That's right. Death and taxes. So we can branch out to some of the more bizarre theories. Mm -hmm. Um, Aliens, yetis, scasquatches, scasquatches. Scasquatches. Yeah. The violent nature of some of the hikers' wounds did lead people to wonder if there had been some sort of an attack by aliens Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. the orbs. Naturally. Or by a Yeti. The Yeti thing was given a little bit more of a foundation due to two things. One was the hikers' diary, which they had made in this, like, cute form of a pretend newspaper. And they mentioned something about Yetis, but it was clearly a joke. Right. Um, It was almost like they were making a comic. Right. And they're out in Siberia, so of course that would be something they would joke about. And then a picture that was found on one of the camera rolls um, that was found with the hikers. And we can put that up on Instagram. It's so legit. It's It's, definitely Sasquatch. definitely a Yeti. Um, But in the context of the photos that were found immediately before that picture on the film roll, it's pretty clear the hikers were just goofing off. And that the third and final picture in the series is just a blurry variation of the prior two, which are both pictures of one of the men in the group just all bundled up. And I didn't even see the pictures before and after that. And when you sent me the one of what was the Sasquatch, I'm like, yeah, that pretty much looks like somebody just all bundled up walking out from behind the tree. Yes. But it, it is in the classic like Yeti pose <laughs> yeah. that like Jack Lynx uses in their beef jerky commercials. So exactly. I can see how people can get confused. Yes. It's like, it's the, um, wow. And now the word is escaping me. Manatee. I kept thinking mammoth. Oh. Manatee mermaid. It's okay. that sort of 
that yeah. sort of dichotomy. Just, mm-hmm. So close. Yeah. Just squint and it looks like a beautiful mermaid. Same thing. <laughs> if you squint hard enough, it's definitely a Yeti. Oh, man. Also, there were only nine sets of tracks leading from the ten and there were no animal or alien right. prints, whatever those would look like. Unless they fly. Man, I'm just coming it's, in with the fly theories. We can't rule it out, but they just don't fit well <laughs> with the facts. And there are probably more interesting theories that do a better job of tying up all the loose ends. In the words of Jim Carrey. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> you're saying there is still a chance. Um, another theory is that high winds might have blown one of the members of the group away. And I'm so sorry to laugh at that, but it just seems so insane to me. What? And they all like chased after them? Yes. And this is why this is crazy. A large experienced group would not have behaved like that. The winds. No. And also, winds strong enough to blow a human clean off the side of the mountain would have probably also blown down that tent, which was still standing, mm. you know, a full month yes. later. So. Right. Another theory is a romantic dispute that an argument possibly related to a romantic encounter. Yeah, I think we I think we ruled that one <laughs> that out. That left only some of them partially clothed. People were like, maybe they were having a big old orgy and things got out of hand. You're like, but all the girls were virgins. I'm like, and they're wearing their them. swimming underwear. <laughs> but that would explain how those underwear got all ripped up. <laughs> they just got real excited. <laughs> the heat of the moment, you never know. <laughs> just go die of hypothermia. <laughs> Um, Donnie Eicher wrote about this in his book and said it's highly implausible. By all indications, the group was harmonious. Sexual tension was confined to platonic flirtation and crushes. There were no drugs present, and the only alcohol was a small flask of medicinal alcohol, which was found intact and full at the scene. Okay. The group had even sworn off cigarettes for the expedition. That wasn't smart. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> You're going to want those. Yeah. And furthermore, a fight could not have left the massive injuries that at least one of the bodies had suffered, like those crushing injuries. Oh, yeah, yeah. It just couldn't have been from a fight. No, unless they did like a pig pile on them. But <laughs> even that, like the timing and the placement of bodies wouldn't work out. I have not thought of pig piling in <laughs> at least two decades. You just like unlocked a part of my brain. A core memory. <laughs> it was sealed up forever, I thought. Um, the One of the most common theories is avalanche. At first, I hated this theory and I do still think it has some major problems. I don't like the simplicity of it. And at first, I also didn't think it made any sense. The hikers didn't appear to have been victims of an avalanche. There were no recent signs of an avalanche in the area. The area itself wasn't known to be prone to avalanches, and in the 55 years that have passed since, there has never been one. And the tent was still standing up and pretty sturdily so when it was found by the searchers. Mm -hmm. It wasn't buried. It wasn't flattened under feet of snow like you might have expected in the event of an avalanche. But I have to admit there's some logic if what we're talking about is a slab avalanche. This is a specific kind of avalanche. Apparently, typically for there to be an avalanche, the slope has to be at least 30 degrees. But the combination of how the group had sort of cut into the snow on the slope to make a windbreak for their tent. Mm. Um, And that combined with something that's called catabatic winds, which we'll get into in a minute, it may have prompted a small snow slab to dislodge. Okay. As Douglas Preston wrote in The New Yorker, the most appealing aspect of this theory is that the Dyatlov party's actions, quote, no longer seem irrational. The snow slab would probably have made loud cracks and rumbles as it fell across the tent, making a real avalanche seem imminent. Mm. Everything they did subsequently was textbook. They conducted an emergency evacuation to ground that would be safe from the avalanche. They took shelter in the woods. They started a fire. They dug a snow cave. Had they been less experienced, they might have remained near the tent, 
dug it out, and survived. But avalanches are by far the biggest risk in the mountains in wintertime. And the more experience you have, the more you fear them. The skier's expertise doomed them. Wow. Isn't that so sad? Oh my gosh. I would have survived. <laughs> I'd be like, listen, I'm half-dressed. You, the snow can come and take me because I am not... I would have not getting out of here in these swim pants. <laughs> yes. When I get really scared, I just, I lock up. Yep. Like when I wake up in the middle of the night and I think I see someone standing in my corner, I don't react. I just, I sit just in freeze. frozen terror, just waiting for it to move. <laughs> so I would survive that avalanche. I also wouldn't be out there, but. No. Well, right. I'm going to survive because I'm going to be at home watching Netflix. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but if I was out there. That's right. Yeah. So that's very sad. I don't think yeah. it answers everything, but no, it explains but some things. Hmm, interesting. And then, it, and then it would just be like a series of unfortunate events, yes. like what happened after that. Like, so those three built the cave, maybe something, I don't know. Maybe some there was like- fell into a ravine when they were fleeing in the darkness. Yeah. If they yeah, fell hard yeah. enough, that could have explained oh, the crushing okay. injuries. Yep. Okay. I'm, I'm buying Possible. that. Possible. I'm buying that. I like it better than aliens. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it's a little more fleshed out than mm-hmm. aliens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, catabatic winds were sort of related to the avalanche. Um, they're somewhat rare events, but they can be extremely violent when they do occur. They were actually deemed responsible for a 1978 case in a mountain in Sweden where eight hikers were killed and one was severely injured. And the topography of that Swedish mountain called Anaris Mountain is the same as Kolatsiakl Mountain. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> they're very similar. Okay. So a sudden catabatic wind would have made it impossible to remain in the tent, and the most rational course of action would have been for the hikers to cover the tent with snow and seek shelter behind the tree line. Interestingly, there was also a flashlight that was found turned on on and left on top of the abandoned tent. Oh. And in this theory, the hikers might have possibly left it there intentionally so that they had a beacon to find their way back once the wind subsided. The hikers may have constructed two shelters because... They were, you know, there was the one by the cedar tree where mm-hmm. the first two bodies were found. And then there was that one down in the ravine, yep. one of which collapsed and left four of the hikers buried with the severe injuries that were later observed at autopsy. Oh. Again, okay. plausible or at least right. possible. It sort of explains, like you so said. So are the catabatic winds, are they like just high winds? Yes. They're this weather phenomenon that we don't see very often here or anywhere, but particularly with the topography of a mountain like this, where it's just... It's not pointy. The peak isn't pointy. It's sort of like smooth and domed. Okay. And just because of that, I I don't want to get into science corner because I just don't understand enough about it. <laughs> and I'm going to sound like a fool if you have yeah. any meteorologists out there. They're going to be like, quit that's, now. That's not quit right. Quit now. They're like, that's wrong. <laughs> but people much smarter than me um, have looked into this and said that the topography of the mountain may have been right. Okay. Um, in, in already windy conditions to create this type of wind that apparently sounds like so loud that it it sounds like freight trains going by the tent. That's crazy. Yeah. So that would be enough to maybe even shake a very experienced hiker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like what is even happening? Because they wouldn't have probably ever experienced it before. Or, or like even known about it. Like yeah. why would you know about that? Right. And again, no internet. So it's not like they're Googling stuff and they're like, oh, who knew that could happen? They were kind of limited to I don't know what what their textbooks and their huh. studies could have prepared them for. And I feel like that probably involves physics as opposed to meteorology. 
Yeah, some like of the that. amplification of sound, if it sounds crazy, that's crazy. Yeah, effectively what happens, and there's this little diagram that we can put in the Instagram, but it it blows around the dome and it creates almost like two mini tornadoes. Oh. And the, the deafening like sound the of them would have so... been terrifying. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow, nature's wild. It is, right? Just more reasons to never go outside. Right, yeah, no, definitely. Um, and then there was infrasound. This was Donnie Icar's favorite. He talks about it a lot in the book Dead Mountain. His He theorized that the wind going around Colette Seattle created something called a Carmen Vortex Street. It's a weather phenomenon which can produce infrasound, which is capable of producing panic attacks in humans. Mm. It's one of those like frequencies that we can't hear with our known, you know, we can't register it. Yep. Like we would register a normal sound. Right. But our brains are, are still, still registering it. it. And yeah. it's very disturbing when your brain is reacting to a sound, but you can't hear it. Yeah. And apparently it causes all sorts of weird, just feelings of dread and doom Ooh. and panic. and Electrical wires do that too. Yeah. I've watched enough ghost hunters to know. <laughs> yes, yes. Keep those windmills away from me. <laughs> Um, so according to Icar's theory, the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of Colatsiaco Mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers. Icar claims that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary, and they fled down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of infrasound's path, and they would have regained their composure, but in the darkness, they wouldn't have been able to find their way back to their shelter. Mm. And the traumatic injuries suffered by three of the victims were the result of their stumbling over the the edge of a ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. Hmm. Hmm. So there's some plausible ones there, but yeah. you see how nothing totally wraps it up? No, it doesn't. But that's why, that's why it's gotta be one. It's gotta be one of those ones where it's like a reasonable reason that they left the tent. Like it was part of their training and like, yes. that's why I like, I like the slab. Yes. The slab avalanche one. Right. Um, because only so many things could be that scary to them right, that, that they, they would, would leave with no shoes because right. I, I cannot stress what a death sentence it is to right. be out there with no shoes on. Right. Yeah. Um, so it definitely, yeah. So, you know, wrapping up, generally speaking, I think part of the staying power of this case in the public imagination is that the actions of the university administrators, the local government, and the prosecutor's office were all suspicious. Mm -hmm. The university refusing to send a search party more promptly, the military refusing to fly the last bodies away promptly, trying to keep the public away from the funerals, not letting the families of the last four see their deceased loved ones, mm -hmm. and closing the case before all the test results had even returned and with no real satisfactory answer ever found. All of these things individually look bad, but combined, you know, who can blame people for being skeptical? Right. It's pretty classic. And not that I'm saying that we would know, Marina, nothing about this at all, but if you've ever lived in a country where the government's behavior has been so sketchy for such a long time that it has mm -hmm. effectively permanently undermined the credibility, mm -hmm. you know, not that we would know anything about that, it no. turns every tragedy into fertile ground for portrayal as some sort of government cover-up. Yeah. And I think that just might be why it's so tempting to lean toward, you know, government-related things here, government-involved cover-ups. Even when just weird Cold War cloak-and-dagger censorship combined with, you know, garden-variety bureaucratic incompetence is probably equally, if not more likely, as an explanation. Um, I think it is particularly upsetting to the Russian people, many of whom to this day are like, no, the, the government killed these hikers. That's what happened here. There are books about it that go well into detail on it. 
Also, I like the way you said censorship because it sounded like you were like censoring your censorship. Yes. You were like censorship. I, I kind of stumbled over it and I just plowed right through. I know. I just wanted to not allow you to do that yeah, in, in classic form. You're welcome. And you know, some things don't change because decades later, the government of Russia remains shady as hell. And that is no mm-hmm. offense to Vladimir Putin. If he is listening, please do not make me any polonium tea or whatever other interesting things you do to people. Um, In February 2019, the Russian authorities reopened the investigation into the incident, but they only considered three and more like two and a half possible explanations. An avalanche, a slab avalanche, or a hurricane, which no one anywhere else has ever brought up. Okay. Shockingly, um, the reinvestigation determined that an avalanche was the cause of the hiker's death. Classic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And just a final note, Yuri Yudin died in 2013 at the age of 75, and despite his extremely traumatic experience and questions that remained unanswered and haunted him until his death, he held on to his love of the outdoors, and for decades after the Dyatlov Pass incident, Yudin still enjoyed hiking in the Ural Mountains whenever his physical condition allowed. Okay. Well... Yeah, I couldn't, can't say that, um, I, no, no, No. I think I (laughs) never would have gone hiking ever again, but, um, yeah, I don't know, maybe it's because I don't love hiking that much, so. No, 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 I think I'm good with that, but bless your Yudin, and I don't know what goes on when we die, but I hope he found the answers he was looking for. Wow. Okay, well, first of all, um, Snaps, that was a bomb-ass episode. <laughs> Thank you. I have heard this before, <laughs> and I still was so enthralled with your telling of it that, like, I was scared of my house. I to don't even know fair, what happened. what you heard before was a very jumbled in- <laughs> No, but I've, I've listened to it on, um, oh, I've listened podcasts, to it, yeah, yeah, other podcasts. That's right. And I thought you meant my retelling. I was like, well. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, well, this may be a re-record. Um, yeah. And it's very well done now. Um, Second time was the charm. It was. But guys, seriously, if you're enjoying listening to Grimm, please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, make our day by leaving us a written review. You can find our page on Facebook by searching Grimm colon a true crime podcast. If you want to subscribe to our Patreon, you can go to Patreon and search Grimm colon a true crime podcast. Follow us on Instagram to see the pictures of the Yetis at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos. If you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Listen, learn, and stay alive until next time because the future is grim. Grim.